Welcome to the Boom Boom Performance Podcast, your resource for science-based training and nutrition, data-driven coaching, and education-focused content. Before we get into this podcast, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen and learn with me so that you can apply what you are about to learn, take my strategies, use these tools, and finally have some serious methods to see sustainable success with your physique, your mind, and your life. This podcast was built on the foundation of applied education, and I'm excited for you to be here so you can have that experience with me. Now, without any further ado, let's get on to the show. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Guianet, the author of The Hungry Brain. This is a really uh, cool interview for me because I'm a huge fan of this book. I read through this book literally in like two weeks. I flew through it because it's so fascinating to me. Um, And it really dives into the different aspects of why we overeat, essentially, why people are obese, how leptin and ghrelin work in our body, um, some metabolic triggers inside of our brain or inside of our body, I should say, that are triggered by our brain and kind of have these toggles as to why we overeat, why we become overfat, why it's hard to lose fat, um, why it's hard to stop overeating, so on and so forth. So today... We're really just going to touch on the book. We're going to dive into why he wrote the book, his background, and that led him to writing this book, um, and then what the book's about and some education behind this idea of the quote-unquote hungry brain. We're also going to touch on some specific things that he has in the works, um, some project that he's doing that I think is really, really valuable to the listeners because it's a free resource to get the best rated research and books so you don't go wondering what books to read, what authors to trust, what what sources to actually look to for good information. So I'm really excited about that as well. Um, I think you're going to enjoy this podcast because it's a different take on dieting than you've heard in the past. And we have some good dialogue going back and forth from a um, author and scientific publisher and a coach in the practical setting. And, and the dialogue makes it a very productive conversation versus a one-sided conversation. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this a lot. If you like the show, please do me a huge favor. Take a screenshot of the episode right now. Head over to to your Instagram story, post a picture on your story, tag myself at Cody.BoomBoom. I want to see it. I want to thank you for listening to this show, and I want to share it on my story as well. Without any further ado, let's get on this episode with the one and only Dr. Stephen Guianet. All right, cool. So um, I have been uh, excited about this. I have actually looked at my calendar a few times wondering when this interview was coming because I have been really (laughs) excited about this one, man. I love your book. Um, So I have with me Dr. Stephen Guianet, and he is the author of The Hungry Brain, uh, outsmarting the instinct that makes us overeat. And this is a book that um, I don't even, when did you publish this book? We should start there. The book came out in 2017, I believe. Okay, so it's been out Early for a while. 2017. I've heard about it many times and I just hadn't dig, dug into it. Um, and I'm not a fast reader, but I actually went through this pretty quickly because uh, there's just so much good research inside of it. And you use a lot of experience in stories about experiments in the past or examples and and you tie it into different cultures and there's so much cool there's so many cool aspects of this book or, or stories inside this book that really help me stay engaged because I find that sometimes when you're reading uh, for example uh, a nutrition physiology textbook I mean very dry and it's like you got to get through it but um, really really great book I flew through it and I'm, I'm really excited to have you on and kind of dive into this because I, I truly believe as, as somebody who um, owns and leads a team of nutrition coaches who work with people around the world. This is the kind of stuff that a lot of people miss out on that really helps transform people's health, transforms people's body, help them finally lose weight or understand why their body might be resilient to it or stubborn with it. Um, and a lot of people focus so much on just macros and, and trying to set up a diet that they forget to dive into these kind of things. So um, I'm really excited to dive into this. But first and foremost, um, please introduce yourself and give us a little background of uh, maybe your school and how you got into this and so on and so forth. Yeah, sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. My name is Stefan Guinay, and uh, I have kind of always been interested in fitness and health and nutrition. Um, and I'll also always been a scientist at heart. Even when I was a little kid, I loved doing little experiments uh, in the backyard and stuff. And um, as I got older, I thought that it would be interesting to study the brain. So to become a neuroscientist, a couple of reasons for that. First of all, the brain more than any organ is what makes us who we are. And second, it's one of the greatest remaining frontiers in science. So most organs we know a lot more about than we know about the brain. 
brain, there's still tons that we have to learn. And so it's, it's this exciting frontier for us to really uh, learn more about who we are and how we function. And so I uh, did biochemistry undergrad with the intention of using that as a foundation for going into neuroscience, which I did for my PhD work at the University of Washington. And uh, at the time, I was really interested in neurodegenerative diseases, things like Alzheimer's disease. And so I was working in a lab that studied neurodegenerative disease. But I was studying a, a, a disease that was quite rare. And it was something that really doesn't affect a lot of people. And so um, I ended up thinking that I wanted to study something that was more impactful. And you know, since I have this interest in fitness and health and nutrition, I was always kind of interested in obesity and body fatness and what causes it. And I came to understand through some of the reading that I had been doing that it had actually a lot to do with the brain. And nobody should really be that surprised. I mean, this isn't something that necessarily occurs to you spontaneously. But, you know, once you hear it, it should click that you know, all of our behaviors are generated by the brain. So how much you eat, what you choose to eat, how you move your body, and then also a lot of the physiology that happens in your body, including regulating your body fat itself, all that happens as a result of brain activity. And so it shouldn't be any surprise that the brain is very important in determining the amount of fat on your body. And so uh, I decided that I wanted to take my neuroscience expertise and apply it to the study of obesity. And so that's what I did as a postdoc also at the University of Washington. I was in the lab of Mike Schwartz and we were basically studying what is it that changes in the brain that causes obesity to occur and causes obesity to be maintained once it has occurred. And so um, over the course of that, my time in his lab, the, the work that I did myself, but particularly all the reading I did that was coming out of that field, um, I really started to get the feeling that there was a ton of information out there that was really interesting and really relevant to this question and that was not getting out to the public. So essentially, researchers have a pretty good understanding, or at least a, a decent understanding, of what determines body fatness and how it's regulated by the brain and body, and yet that wasn't really reaching the public in a coherent way. And so it was allowing all of these harebrained theories to proliferate. And so I started writing about it on my blog, et cetera. And that eventually um, culminated in me writing this book, The Hungry Brain, which is kind of like the magnum opus uh, of me putting all this stuff together into a sort of coherent, uh, you know, semi-comprehensive explanation of the brain's role in eating behavior and obesity. Um, first question, completely unrelated. Are you, do you live in Washington? I do. I live in the Seattle area. Oh, okay. Very cool. I'm, I'm actually in Bonnie Lake right now. Uh, oh, okay. I, I remember reading that you, you were at UW, um, but I didn't think to ask before we started recording. Like, I wonder if he's still in the States. So that's pretty cool. Um, so I, I'd love, and this is, I know you probably can't do this full justice uh, in a podcast, let alone a single section of a podcast. Um, so obviously we encourage people to go read the book, but I would love for you to kind of, explain the tie-in from the brain to the metabolism of the brain and to body fatness because I think a lot of people assume it's just a matter of calories and reverse dieting and these things that you can um, I, I've heard the analogy of it kind of being like a, a thermostat or a toggle um, and I'd love for you to tie in the the neuroscience of it the, the brain activity with this because I think like you said a lot of people and it's obvious but a lot of people ignore that side of things and they're just so focused on calories or just so focused on training in the gym and so on and so forth um, and when you do explain this in the book it just makes so many other things that have happened in my career or things I've read throughout the years make more sense and that's what I thought was really cool but I'd love if you can to kind of kind of tie this together for us in a nutshell so so the listeners can better understand yeah absolutely so calories are really important but calories are the mechanism by which the brain regulates body fatness so you know they're, it's not two mutually exclusive things. It's two things that work together. And so um, the first sign that the brain had something to do with body fatness came out in the mid-1800s 
there was a German physician named Bernard Moore who who reported this patient who had rapidly gained an enormous amount of weight. So this person in a short period of time had become very, very obese. And eventually this woman died. Uh, Her name was Eliza Moser. And she, sorry, did I say German? I think he was Austrian. Anyway, um, she died and he had the opportunity to autopsy her brain. And what he found was that there was a tumor on the underside of her brain that had damaged a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. It's part of the brain on the underside of your brain near where the optic nerves cross. It's a really small part of the brain that we now know regulates a number of things in your body like body temperature, blood pressure, blood glucose, other things like that. Um, And one of the things that regulates is body fatness. And we know today that tumors that disrupt this area do often cause obesity. It's called hypothalamic obesity. Uh, That's what we call it when someone gets damaged to this area. And basically, when that happens, and you can do the same thing by lesioning that brain area in rats, they become incredibly obese. Um, Yeah, what happens is that these circuits that normally would regulate body fatness in a healthier way, they go completely out of whack, your appetite goes way through the roof, and you start packing on a lot of fat. So um, over the course of the next you know, 170 years, basically, we have uncovered how this system works. Basically, the way it works, or, you know, I don't want to say we know every detail of it, but the basics have been have been laid out. The way it works is that your fat tissue secretes this hormone called leptin. And that leptin circulates in your blood, proportional to how much fat you have. So the more fat you have, the more leptin you have. And that is what your brain measures to know how much fat is in your body. And your brain uses that to regulate outputs that then impact your body fatness. And this is called a negative feedback system. It's similar to the one that's in your home thermostat. So your thermostat, you know, you set, let's say you set the temperature to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. If the temperature, you know, it's constantly measuring the temperature. And if the temperature deviates from that, it activates a response to oppose the change and bring the temperature back to, to the set point which in in this case is 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And of course, your brain regulates body temperature in that way as well. Another thing it regulates in that way is body fatness. So it's always measuring that level of leptin in your blood. And if the level of leptin goes down, it activates a suite of responses, both that affect your behavior and that affect your physiology, how your body runs. And both of those things together try to get the fat back. And so what you'll notice if you try to lose weight, this would be like the you know, typical stereotypical thing. If you just try to do portion control and eat fewer calories, generally you'll notice that you feel hungrier, your cravings start to increase. The more weight you lose, the hungrier you get, the more your cravings increase. You might start to feel cold and sluggish as your metabolic rate slows. So your body is trying to give up fewer calories and take in more calories replenish that fat. So this is what I was talking about, how there's this regulatory system and it uses calories to regulate your body fatness. So calories are part of the picture, but it's part of the regulatory system. And um, and yeah, so this is a system that has really profound implications because what we find is that people, no matter what your weight is, if you're just at your comfortable weight, if you're not trying to change your weight, you're not trying to lose weight, you're not trying to gain weight, you're just kind of at your normal comfortable weight, your brain will generally defend that weight against changes. That is the weight that your brain wants to be at. And that's true if you're lean, that is true if you have obesity, and that's true everywhere in between. So that your brain actually actively defends that weight against changes. So if a person who is lean tries to lose fat, their brain is going to get very upset about it, and they're going to experience those responses I explained, which I call the starvation response. That's exactly what it is. And then you see the exact same thing in a person with obesity, which I mean, is really a cruel irony, because you think about a person with obesity, by definition, has excess body fat. So why would their regulatory system protest when they're losing body fat, that's actually good for them. But that's just not how we're wired. So that system 
does not like it, it initiates the starvation response. And that makes it very difficult for them to lose weight and to sustain weight loss. And so this is a key reason why weight loss is so difficult and often is temporary. So I mean, I think the first thing is to understand that body fat is regulated. That's not something that most people understand. And the second thing is to understand how that system works, how it could undermine your weight loss efforts, and how you might be able to actually recruit that system to help with your weight loss efforts. Because I think if you just ignore it, if you act like the system doesn't exist, you're going to have a hard time, you're going to be frustrated, and your likelihood of failing is probably going to be higher. If you know the system exists, you know how it works, you're prepared for it, and you're doing what you can to try to actually help it work for you, then I think you're going to have an easier time and you're going to be able to be more sustainable in your efforts and also have a little bit of compassion for yourself along the way. I like the way you finished that because I think that um, in my experience, education and awareness are two of the best ways to kind of have self-discipline. And to an extent, when you when you feel hunger, you need to have that awareness to know like, okay, maybe this is just my hunger response, my starvation response. I need to wait a little bit longer. I just need to stay consistent and I can kind of get through it. Or maybe I do need to have a little more calories today, but not go into a binge. And if you have that awareness of what's going on, I think it can help that process. Now, when we talk about this regulatory response, is there any timeline for it where you can kind of predict how long it takes in order for this to kick in and for somebody to start feeling those symptoms? Or is it just purely off of how much weight is lost or how big of a caloric deficit they go into? There doesn't, to, to my knowledge, there does not appear to be a time component. So it's not like it takes a certain amount of time to kick in, or if you maintain a reduced weight for a certain period of time, it will go away. It doesn't really seem to be very time dependent. It's more dependent on how much weight you've lost. So if you just lose a little bit of weight, you might not experience any friction, or you might just experience a little bit. Uh, if you try to lose a lot of weight, chances are you will experience a lot more resistance. Um, and yeah, so it's like the spring. The harder you pull on it, the harder it pulls back. Is there any uh, merit to like the speed of that weight loss too? Uh, meaning uh, the more aggressive you are, like the faster you lose it, the more severe you feel those things. Or if you take a very slow, gradual approach, like your body can kind of catch up. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I don't actually know how the actual regulatory system itself responds to the speed of weight loss. And I don't know whether that's been studied or not. There are ways to study that. I don't know if that's been applied to in that way to answer that question. But what I can say is that if you just look at the studies that compare fast weight loss to slow weight loss in humans, generally fast, fast weight loss is more effective in terms of causing more pounds lost and better maintenance. Um, and I'm not sure exactly why that is. Maybe it's just, you know, people have an easier time sustaining motivation when they see the pounds coming off. Um, but yeah, the, essentially some of the best results you see in the scientific liter literature are when you put people on very low calorie meal replacement diets, where you're just handing them like some kind of low calorie shake. And you're saying, this is what you eat today. There's no it kind of removes the choice element, which I think can be challenging for people. It's just mm -hmm. like this can or this, you know, little meal replacement thing is all I'm going to eat today. That's it. And for some reason, people find that it just gives more effective results typically than the slow and steady approach. And um, that's really counterintuitive for a lot of people because I think there's this idea out there that slow and steady wins the race with weight loss. But really, I'm not aware of any evidence to support that. And in fact, the evidence I'm aware of suggests that more rapid weight loss yields um, larger and more sustainable results. The only time I would ever even argue against that, or like in my experience that I think the slower, because I think there's a big motiv motivational component. If, if it's so slow, you don't see the progress, it's hard to keep going, period. Um, but I would say the only time I've ever seen I see slow progress work a little bit better um, is just if, if somebody's personality type is very all or nothing and they go through these swings of like, they just crash diet and then you don't hear back from your client for a week and they go on a binge episode and they come back. And, and sometimes I think 
not because the slow is maybe more effective physiologically, but just psychologically for that individual. Um, another question that, that I thought of while you were going off that is, is this uh, leptin response and, and this kind of system and regulatory system that we're trying to kind of fight back essentially, um, is it solely tied to fat or is there any uh, tie-in with just calories in general? And the reason I ask that is because over the years, this has kind of changed. This food of thought has changed. But like originally, it was like, oh, you have your cheat meal and it boosts your metabolism, you'll be fine. Um, and then it was like, oh, you, you need a refeed day, not a cheat meal. So like raise your carbs for a day. And then it came out like, oh, you need at least 48 hours. And now they're saying it's like 72 or more hours just to have any physiological response to the increase in calories. Um, but that's studies saying that the calories are indeed what is kind of tricking the system, for lack of better terms, versus body fat. Um, is there merit to that? Or, or would you say it is, is solely body fat that is causing this? So it's both. And I'll say a couple of things about it. First of all, I'll take the perspective of leptin, which is really the, the main hormone that regulates uh, body fatness in the body. So, you know, that's the simple version of the story that leptin correlates with body fat mass, and that's what it's telling the brain. But it's actually a little bit more complicated because leptin actually responds to your calorie intake in the short term too. So it's actually reflecting both of those things. So if you eat a lot more calories than usual for one day, your leptin is going to be elevated for a day or two. So certainly physiologically, there are responses that are feeding into your brain that do reflect your short term calorie intake, not just your body fatness. And the second thing I will say is that you know, the way that the brain regulates your eating behavior, essentially, one of the ways it regulates is it is detecting all of these signals coming from your body that reflect your body's current energy status. So it's detecting how much fat you have on your body, it's detecting how much food is in your gut and what that food is. It's probably detecting other things like how much glycogen you stores you have in your liver and muscles. And all of those signals are converging on the brain and it's integrating that all into an overall signal of energy need. So the brain is deciding, do we need energy right now or do we not need energy right now? And then that yields your, that's part, that's one input into your eating drive. And so, so I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not trying to just boil it all down to leptin. I think there are other signals that are playing into this and some of those are going to probably also respond to your calorie intake. That said, um, you know, this issue of refeeds kind of uh, boosting your metabolism or, or whatever they're supposed to do, I think that, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's two different ways to look at this. One is from the physiology perspective, which is where I'm coming from. There's no reason to expect that those would do anything special. Um, you know, like, there's no reason to expect physiologically that they would do uh, anything more than just the same thing you would get if you just ate, if you just averaged out that same calorie intake and ate it every day the same. So instead of, you know, having it low and then high one day and then low again. So there's nothing about the system that implies that that refeed would do anything special over the long run as opposed to just, you know, beyond just what it does for that one or two days physiologically. That said, you know, there, the other perspective you could take is, you know, maybe you could take the uh, personal trainer perspective where you're saying, well, I do this in my clients and I see results. And so I can't really argue against that. As far as I know, I'm not aware that it, that it's been studied scientifically, so I don't know about that, but you know, biology is complex, and is there some kind of beneficial effect that I'm not aware of? There could be. Yeah, I think uh, I think the boosting your metabolism is is a term that probably doesn't describe it very well. One thing, um, there's some cool studies like the Matador study and stuff that have looked at this, and I think that what I kind of look at it is like a day, a refeed day. Um, or maybe even two days would kind of put the pause on the negative metabolic adaptations that are happening when you're doing a diet. Um, and a three to seven day refeed where you're taking a long period off might start to reverse some of those negative adaptations. 
but then you get back in the deficit and the diet and they probably start back up. So what I always tell people is like, you can do these things during a diet and they may help uh, during the diet, maybe sustain the diet, but at the end of the day, you're still on a diet. And if you're still on a diet, losing fat and, and eating lower calories in the grand scheme of a week or a month, I think some of these adaptations are going to occur no matter what. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes sense to me, what you just said, but I mean, is it like a psychological tool where you're just like, I got to break from struggling against my hunger and stuff? Or, cause I mean, I, I always thought about it as this idea where if you take this break for a day or a week or whatever, then after you go off the break, you're still gonna be benefiting from that physiologically. Um, or am I misunderstanding what like what the goal of it is? No, I think it's both. I think uh, usually in, inside the coaching space, we we will use like a one or a two day, like a short term one, as more of a psychological. Like you're just taking a break from the diet. Like don't worry about eating less. Like have some more flexibility. Um, when we're looking at doing three, four, five up to set like a full week. Um, there are some studies that show like a uh, kind of like, a, like I said, like a pause on the depression of, of these hormones that are kind of causing your body to have negative adaptations during a diet. Um, I can send you a couple of those if you're interested in them, but they're, they're essentially just looking at like, if you're in a 12 to 16 week diet, by the end of those 12 to 16 weeks, you're still going to have those negative adaptations over the period of time. But for the people who use these diet breaks, uh, every like two weeks, I think it was, they would have a full week of not dieting. They had far less of those adaptations or far less muscle loss, for example, and things like that. Um, and, that and, and that was true even after they were no longer on the break and like total fat loss was the same between the control group? The total fat loss was the same. However, the the duration was longer. So because of those diet breaks, we're not dieting. Mm -hmm. Like I believe the dieting group was like 16 weeks and the non-dieting group was uh, like 1.5 to two times longer because they had those maintenances. So the trade-off there is like we kind of talked about earlier, the motivation of saying like, we're going to do this system and it's going to help you physiologically, but you're going to have to diet for 32 mm -hmm. weeks because of it. That's the caveat to it, right? And And that's where as a coach, it's kind of like the art of coaching of like, okay, do we put somebody through that long of a diet just to hopefully reverse some of these metabolic adaptations? Or do we just sprinkle in these refeeds to make sure that their glycogen is replenished and they can kind of mentally take a break every once in a while? Yeah. So, you know, my perspective is if there's evidence that it works, then there's evidence that it works. Um, I wasn't aware of that study, but that's interesting. Um, to me, I don't think that the physiology of it um, kind of makes it obvious that that would occur, but if it, you know, if the study shows it, then 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 it must happen. Yeah, I'm gonna. Uh, if you don't mind, I'm gonna. I'll email you uh, one of these sites. I'd love to get your opinion on it, just because I think you'd have an interesting intake uh, perspective on it. Yeah, sounds um, good. So, like the next thing I kind of wanted to talk about, kind of going back before we introduce this diet break idea, is is just kind of going back into uh, essentially the hormonal repercussions of dieting period. So like as somebody's dieting, like physiologically, like what do we have to worry about? And, and kind of going back to the title of your book, like how do we outsmart this process? Um, are there other things besides just body fat? Like you mentioned, there's other things that influence this. Does that mean stress or recovery or like what else could be potentially um, causing this effect to happen or causing body fatness to be almost harder to outsmart for just everyday people who are trying to lose weight? Yeah, so I think that there are a number of things that affect how this regulatory system works. So obviously, your defended level of body fatness, or we'll call it the set point, can change over time. So you know, you have people who are lean when they're 18 years old, and then by the time they're 55, they are overweight or have obesity. And that would actually be the typical trajectory for a person in the United States. Uh, you know, the average trajectory. And so obviously something is changing. And if we look at non-industrialized cultures that are living, you know, in a way more similar to how our distant ancestors lived, you don't really see that. They don't generally gain weight with age. Typically what you would see is that they hit peak weight around um, peak reproductive years, and then their weight actually goes down mostly from a loss of lean mass as they get older and older. And so um, obviously in industrialized cultures like the United States, our body fatness and 
our actual defended level of body fatness can go up with age, but it can also go down. And there are factors that can affect this. And that's what I spend a lot of time discussing in my book. So one of the things you see in animal models and in human experiments is that the palatability of a diet or how, um, how tasty, really how seductive it is, um, is one of the things that seems to plug into that equation. So these, uh, this, this regulatory system seems to um, be very adaptive to the conditions that you're living in. So if you're living in a situation where you're surrounded by foods that are very, very seductive, in other words, your brain implicitly values those greatly, it's essentially going to pull out all the stops to allow you to consume more of those foods. And one of the ways it does that is by um, increasing your set point. So your set point goes up, your satiety goes down. In other words, you can eat uh, more of those foods before reaching the point of fullness that tells you to stop a meal. And uh, generally, you know, in, in animal models, you can manipulate the seductiveness or palatability of their food. And you can watch their weight go up and down and up and down depending on you know, how palatable their food is. And in humans, it's the same thing. We eat more of foods we like and, that, and eating foods that are highly seductive actually seems to favor the accumulation of body fat. And conversely, eating very bland, simple foods seems to favor uh, lower levels of body fat. So you know, just as one... Um, Example of this, there was a study I discussed in my book of this experiment where they stripped pretty much all seductiveness out of the diet of a group of people with obesity. They had them eat this bland liquid diet through a straw where they were literally pressing a button to get little doses of this out of a straw into their mouths. So, you know, everything pleasurable, everything enjoyable was stripped out of eating. And what they saw was really remarkable. Actually, they did it in lean people first. The lean people, their calorie intake, they were eating totally typical number of calories, maintaining their weight. People with obesity barely ate any calories. They barely ate anything, and their weight rapidly began to drop. Um, and one guy stayed on this diet for, I think, 300 days and lost half of his body weight. So the effects can be pretty pretty massive. And the, the really interesting thing about it is that these people were losing weight and were not complaining of hunger. That They were eating to fullness. That's how much they wanted to be eating was that very low calorie intake. But because of the nature of the diet, their brains had or were regulating their calorie intake in a different way. Is is there a because that that was one of the most fascinating things uh, uh, studies in the book actually in my opinion um, there was I mean there was a lot of studies in there uh, but is that related to any specific I know there's like certain combinations of foods like how can people kind of like try to pinpoint what is palatable and and uh, are highly palatable and try to remove that uh, seductive nature of that food so that they can try to lose more weight or just sustain it easier. Yeah, yeah. So I'll say a couple of things about this. The first thing I'll say is that most people know what their problem foods are. Most people know what foods trigger an excessive eating drive for them. So, yeah. you know, common things would be ice cream or pizza or brownies, cookies. Most people know what the worst offenders are. So those things that you know are the worst offenders, you know, Obviously, those are not things you should be eating very often in your diet if you're trying to control your weight. Um, but generally, more generally, the things, you know, researchers have pretty much worked out what are the food properties that cause us to have this excess motivational drive to eat. And um, the, essentially, the reason is that there are certain food properties that trigger dopamine release in the brain. So dopamine release into the brain is proportional to the amount of carbohydrate in the food you eat, that is the sugar and the starch, the amount of fat, the amount of salt, um, and the amount of glutamate, which is that meaty monosodium glutamate, soy sauce, bone broth 
flavor. Mm -hmm. And so the more your food contains of those ingredients, up to a point, of course, the more dopamine release you're going to get in the brain. And particularly once you start combining those. So once you start combining carbohydrate and fat, once you start combining fat and salt and starch, so carbs and fat, think about ice cream, you know, consider what would ice cream be without sugar and what would it be without fat? Neither one of those, you know, possibilities are very attractive. And, uh, you know, what would French fries be without fat? What would they be without salt? Yeah. Again, it's really the combination that creates that powerful motivational state in the brain, of course, mediated by dopamine release. And so, um, so those are the, the food properties. Basically, it's combinations of dopamine-stimulating nutrients that cause foods to be very, very seductive. And we are hardwired to respond in this way. And the brain implicitly values foods that have these combinations of properties. And when it sees foods that it places a very high value on implicitly, it finds ways to get you to eat more. And um, so you're talking about cravings, you're talking about stimulating hunger, possibly increasing the set point of body fat so you can eat more. Um, and then conversely, if we're talking about the other side, which is what you were asking about, lower calorie density, unrefined foods. So foods that are closer to their whole natural state. So if you look at foods in nature that humans haven't messed with, there are very few foods that correspond to the, the characteristics that I was just talking about. So there aren't, there are barely any foods that combine um, carbohydrate and fat. There are, there are a couple. There's like nuts have some carbohydrate and some fat. Um, there are very few that have sugar and fat together, though. Um, there's you know, basically very few foods that have salt and anything else combined. Um, and so a lot of these combinations that we find so seductive and so delectable just do not occur in nature and would not have been consumed by our distant ancestors living uh, a hunter-gatherer type lifestyle, or at least would rarely have been consumed. So what you typically see in whole natural foods that are more typical of what our distant ancestors ate they have a lower calorie density because they have higher water content. Sometimes they have higher fiber. So like fresh meats, for example, meat is mostly water. Fruit is mostly water. Vegetables are mostly water. Tubers are mostly water. Um, and then any unrefined plant food is going to have a lot of fiber. So you have lower calorie density. Usually things are not these crazy combinations of a bunch of concentrated dopamine stimulating nutrients. Meat might have protein plus fat, but honestly, I mean, muscle tissue, what we normally think of as meat today, which is muscle tissue of wild animals is extremely lean. There is very little fat in the muscle tissue of wild animals. Now, wild animals do sometimes have fat on their bodies in other places, like, uh, for example, deer in fall will have a lot of fat under the skin. But in the meat itself, it's extremely lean. So, um, so yeah, sometimes you would have protein and fat. Um, and, you know, fruit is basically just carbohydrate. So, you, essentially, the, the foods that our brains evolved to interact with more constructively and regulate more constructively are these less refined, whole natural foods. But we're accustomed in the modern affluent world to having our palates tickled three times a day. We're accustomed to this constant, you know, tsunami of food entertainment on our tongues. And so I think it can be challenging for people. But if you can simplify the diet and make it less seductive, that sends better signals to the parts of your brain that regulate body fatness. It sends better signals to the part of your brain that regulate appetite on a meal-to-meal -meal basis and regulate your fullness level and we can talk about that and uh overall it's just a better situation if you're if you're trying to recruit these brain systems to support your weight management goal i think it's uh it, this is one of those things i've talked about um probably more so since i read the book to be honest with you but uh 
flexible dieting and if it fits your macros is really big in our world right now. And it's kind of this idea of like, you know, calories and macros matter most, so just fit food within that and you'll be fine. But it kind of completely eliminates the context of what you're dis- discussing right now. And, and like I even know for a, a, an easy example of what you're speaking of in my own life is, is I love uh, a sweet potato with grass-fed butter on it, baked sweet potato with grass-fed butter on it, and then put some Johnny's on it. Johnny's is salt. You can even get the MSG-free one, but um, Johnny's is like a Washington seasoning if people listening don't know. But um, if I have those isolated, salt, butter, or fat, and, and sweet potato, I'll probably eat a normal-sized sweet potato. I can eat the most massive sweet potato if I put butter on it and, and to the point where I'm just like bloated and stuffed and I feel lethargic afterwards. And I always think afterwards like, why did I do that? I ate too much. Once I read your book, that was the first thing that came up in my head is like, that's why like that combination is just so unbelievably good. And, and it also makes sense of why um, some restrictive quote unquote diets that people may have followed to lose weight work so well. And, and I think if it fits your macros kind of demonize them, but these they call them bodybuilder diets, so on and so forth. But if you look at it, it's, it's, you know, a grilled chicken breast or steak or fish or whatever. There's a side of vegetables and there's maybe some rice or sweet potato on the side, and maybe like a side of almonds. It's isolated macronutrients and you don't have cravings to just continue eating those things um, in isolation and you still get all yeah. the nutrients you need. Um, so I think it's a yeah. really good insight for people to hear. Absolutely. And a couple of things I want to riff off on that. Um, first of all, <clears throat> I think, yeah, it's this really interesting observation that putting butter and flavorings on a sweet potato, you're actually increasing the calorie density of that, and yet your brain wants you to eat even more of it. It's like, I'm going to add some calories onto this, so let's eat even more of it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're really like, it's, it's, a, it's a counterintuitive thing that happens um, from the perspective of energy regulation. Why would your body do that? But from the perspective of um, food reward, which is how your brain perceives the values of different foods based on their properties, it makes perfect sense. Your brain's like, this is a really valuable food. You just mixed sugar and starch and fat and salt all together. This is amazing. So we have to get as much of this as possible because your brain has kind of a scarcity mindset because that's how we evolved. When it sees this opportunity to have this amazing food, it's not thinking, oh, you, if you wanted to, you could have this every day, every meal. It's thinking, when's the next time I'm going to be able to have this? Maybe not for a long time, because that's just the context that we evolved in. And this, a lot of this stuff is hardwired. It's not really a rational type of processing you know, process. It's just hardwired in there from our distant ancestors. It wants to survive, not get shredded. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so... Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's cool for people to hear because right now with with that big push, um, I think it's good for people to speak up. And And I've talked about like, hey, like simplify or make your diet more bland. It'll be easier than you think to follow the the macros that you are supposed to follow if you do that. Um, and don't get me wrong, every once in a while, like if I want to just gorge on that sweet potato butter, I will. But um, it's, it's the fact that the 90% of my diet is not that way. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, and I think that's really important is that a lot of this really revolves around how easy is it going to be? Right. Because the truth is, you can lose weight while eating junk food. People have done that. You know, there's this famous experiment by Mark Haub where he lost 27 pounds. Yeah, the Twinkie diet, he lost 27 pounds and improved his blood lipids and, and uh, glucose and all kinds of stuff eating this junk food diet. So it's not that it's not possible to do that. Yeah, the calories do matter. But the problem is that that's the hard way to do it. The easier way is to eat in a way that helps to control your appetite. So your, you know, your appetites and your, these other non-conscious drives that are emerging from your brain are aligned with your goals and you're not having to struggle against those all the time. So I think the if it fits your macro thing, um, you know, my perspective if it works for you, that's great. I'm not at all going to criticize it. But I will say that that's something that's popular in the fitness community, where you have people who have really high levels of discipline. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, you know, a lot of folks in the fitness community just have a tremendous amount of discipline, and they can do that kind of portion control, and, and it can make it work for them. And that's cool. But I think when you're talking about the average person who just wants to lose 10 or 20 pounds, 
that's not the same scenario. They need the solution that is going to have, you know, it's going to be the lowest hanging fruit possible so that it can be sustainable for them, you know, because that's not something you do for a month and then you go back to your old diet and then you keep the benefits. That's something you have to keep doing for as long as you want to to want to re- retain those benefits. And so if you want this to work for you for a year, for 10 years, for 20 years, you better choose the easiest and most sustainable method possible or else the likelihood of failing goes up dramatically. And so I think this issue of how easy is it is really, really critical. And that's where eating simpler, less refined food helps you achieve that goal. Yeah, I think that I think the pendulum has swung too far in one direction. I think there's obviously a balance in the middle ground. But I think the problem with it is, like you said, the people who promote if it's your macros at the highest end are highly uh, highly motivated individuals who do this for a living and might have genetics on their favor. Um, but they also promote it as it's an easier way to do this because look, I can have this and still hit my max, still lose weight and blah, blah, blah. Um, but not everybody is the same and it's not easier for everybody. So I think finding that balance is, is really the key. Um, so, so the last thing I really want to kind of ask about with this, this entire topic before we move on to the next thing um, is just kind of wrapping it up on, on, two things, but kind of, it would probably be one answer. And, and one is like, we keep talking about the set point, this, this set point where your body likes to sit. Um, how can we outsmart this system and, and reestablish that set point? Somebody wants to lose 30 pounds and that is their set point, but they want that set point to be 30 pounds less. Like how, how do we go about outsmarting that besides just removing um, the highly palatable foods? Yeah. So the, you know, Reducing, simplifying the diet, eating a, a diet of more unrefined whole natural foods will help, will help to do that. Aside from the factor of basing your diet around whole, unrefined, lower calorie density foods, um, that's going to be a big one that's going to help. Another one is going to be to get regular physical activity. Um, another one is going to be to control the level of psychological stress in your life. Um, those are both things that can that appear to be able to affect um, this body fat regulation system. So one thing I want to specify is that <clears throat> um, you know this is not something where you just hit the reset button and then your weight goes down thirty pounds and then you go back to your old diet and you and you stay there. Mm-hmm. This you know this system it responds to the cues that it's receiving from inside your body and from outside your body in your environment. And you have to keep feeding it the right cues to keep it regulating to a lower level. So this is not, you're, you know, I don't want to give people the wrong impression that you're just kind of flipping the switch and getting your brain to work like it did when you were 18. So this is, you know, something that has to be sustained if you want the regulation, to con- if you want the regulatory system to continue working with you. So for assuming for like just the average person, is it more of a thing of, of controlling the foods we're eating, controlling the um, psychological stress so that we're, we don't have this urge to overfeed and, and kind of end up having more body fat accumulation um, versus uh, this idea of like dieting and, and manipulating calories to a certain point of where you can kind of like establish this new, there's a, there's a term of body fat set point, for example, and like once you get lean, like, okay, how do I, how do I stay here? Um, is it more of managing these, these, these brain cues and these psychological cues that allow us to just not overeat and that's how we sustain it? Um, so what I'm, okay, I'll, I, I think I understand your question. Um, so I'll answer what I think I understand is um, essentially, you know, there's this, it's it's like changing the set point on your thermostat. So if you can convince the system that you should actually be at a lower weight, it's like turning your thermostat from 70 to 60 degrees. It's actually going to defend that lower weight. It's not it's not just a passive consequence of um how much you're eating. Mm. It's actually will defend that new weight against changes. So while, you know, if you eat uh, a diet that's composed of very seductive refined foods, 
your brain might be defending a weight of 230 pounds. So if you just try to cut your calories or exercise or whatever, you're probably not going to lose very, be able to lose very much before you feel this resistance pulling back. Whereas if you are eating a diet of whole unrefined natural foods, your brain will actually, you know, maybe be defending a weight of 180 or 190. And um, that will be what your brain tries to resist changes to. So same way though, if you're on that diet and you try to do portion control, your brain's going to start fighting back against you most likely as you start to lose weight. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. And and I have a follow-up just, just to play devil's advocate because I agree with you, but I just know what people tend to argue. And I'm just curious if you've had this argument is in research studies where they do show like basically the argument is, is no matter what calories controlled, if you, if, if your calories are, are met to where they need to be, you'll lose weight kind of thing. Um, what's your argument to the people that say like, that's all that matters? Do you, do you talk about the sustainability factor of like, where are these people after the study or, or um, they, they just, just that they don't take any of these, uh, the neuroscience perspective into it? Like, what is your argument? Cause I, I got to imagine as an author of such a popular book, you have to have had some kind of pushback on that um, at some point, because a lot of people argue against this idea of eating just whole natural foods and that you can eat whatever you want. Well, no, I haven't had a lot of pushback, but I mean, the again, it comes back to the idea of, of how easy is it. So yeah, I mean, you can, if you're strictly controlling calories in a research setting, it doesn't really matter whether you're eating unrefined foods or refined foods. You will lose weight in the same way you will gain weight in the same way, or you will maintain weight in the same way. And so in that sense, it really is about the calories. So I, what I'm saying does not challenge that at all. It's all about what's the easiest and most sustainable strategy. Because if your goal is to lose weight, you should be changing your energy balance, for example, by eating fewer calories. But there are different ways to achieve that. One way is you, I kind of call it the spreadsheet approach, where you're tracking your calorie intake, you're tracking your energy needs, and you're creating a deficit. And if you successfully create a deficit, yeah, you will lose fat, of course. But the other way to do that is you create the deficit by not by thinking about calories or counting calories, but by changing the types of foods that you eat so that you're naturally consuming fewer calories just because of the effects of those foods on the systems in your body that are regulating appetite and regulating body fatness. And so, you know, there are many ways to do this. Like, this is not a new idea that I came up with. Like, you know, people go on a low carb diet, they're not counting calories, their calorie takes, intake spontaneously declines, they lose fat. People go on a whole food, low fat diet, their calorie intake spontaneously declines, they lose fat. People go on a fruitarian diet, you know, there are many different ways to do this. Mm-hmm carnivore diet that's the latest the latest hotness on twitter um there are many different ways to do this but the key is that you're not intentionally manipulating calories you are changing diet quality and the calorie intake the the calorie intake restriction is following that and the reason why this can be helpful for people is that it helps make it easier because you're not stopping before you're full. You know, like if you sit down, think about how a person normally interacts with food. This is how we've been interacting with food, for, you know, for the entire time that our species has existed and long before is when you're hungry, you try to get food and then you keep eating it until either it runs out or you're full. Assuming it doesn't run out, you just keep eating it until you're full, right? And that's the signal, that fullness is a signal that tells you to stop eating. If you stop eating before you're full and there's still food in front of you or still food available, you're going to feel unsatisfied. And so if you can design a, an eating plan where you're eating to fullness, you're satisfied at the table, your brain feels that it has enough and it is sending you the signal that makes you feel full and that you're satisfied, and that, yet you have nevertheless consumed fewer calories than you would habitually consume, that's a good scenario because that is a scenario where you feel satisfied, you're not exerting 
a bunch of willpower to reduce your calorie intake in that manner. And therefore, you're going to be able to sustain that. So again, I don't, you know, folks who just want to do the straight up spreadsheet approach, totally fine if it works for you. You know, I, I'm not going to criticize that in any way. But I think for the average person, that's not going to be the most effective or sustainable approach, simply because it's more difficult. It's not how we normally interact with food. It's not how we've interacted with food for millions of years. And so it's more challenging for us to do it in that way. Yeah, I would agree. And, and, and we even have, I mean, we have a lot of clients that are very specific on uh, what they're trying to lose, a timeline or athletic performance. And we will use numbers because it, as a coach, it gives us data um, and it ensures they're getting enough fuel more than anything. But I think like the power of this too, even combining those is that when you do focus on what you're talking about as well, it makes that process easier because what people tend to see when you eat less highly palatable and, and more just minimally processed foods is that a little bit of calories feels like a lot more because vegetables and produce and lean meats and fish and even like organic low fat dairy, things like that are very voluminous and you can actually eat more within your calories. So satiety is up, you get more micronutrients, you have less cravings. It's, um, it's one of those things where I think most people, no matter what strategy you use, I think it's applicable. I think most people should probably focus on it. Um, but I'm glad I, I think you answered that question perfectly for us to kind of steer around this calorie question because I know that comes up at least for me quite a bit. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And let me just add one thing. I want to say that the perspective that I typically come from, I'm not so much coming from the you know uh, performance side of things. So for me, like the, the typical case that I usually think of is like the average person who's trying to lose 10 or 20 or 50 pounds. Totally. And so I'm not what my typical perspective that I'm thinking from is not like a performance athlete or a figure athlete or someone like that. Um, there could be, you know, the situation is not exactly analogous for those different types of people. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And even, even for us, like when we do get clients that are um, further and further away from that athletic perspective it's it's we're further and further away from that like what you would call that spreadsheet method um and then the people that are kind of in that gray area who maybe uh want to get as lean as they can and they only have four months whatever it is we do lean more towards that spreadsheet but i think it's just again like anytime i think anybody swings a pendulum too far in one direction i think is when we have a problem and that's what if it fits your macros kind of did it just went too far in the numbers perspective and they forgot about health they forgot about the brain activity that is related to food and so on and so forth um i do want to respect you for your time because we have been on here for about an hour and, and i could probably keep talking on this topic for hours but um i want to touch on uh your your newest project the red pen reviews before we go because i think it's something that is super good for the industry that i'm in i think it's it's probably a passion project for you from the sounds of it um and it's a free resource. So I would love the listeners to be able to actually access it. So can you tell us, um, I mean, obviously what it is, but then also like why you started it and, and who you're trying to create it for really? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. So yeah, it's called Red Pen Reviews. The website is redpenreviews.org. And essentially what we do is we publish expert reviews of popular health and nutrition books. And what makes us unique is that we use a semi-quantitative structured review method to review these books. What that means is that we assign numerical scores to scientific accuracy, reference accuracy, and healthfulness, and then we combine those to give an overall score of the book. And what's really cool about that is that first of all, we have this really consistent, extremely rigorous review process that we apply to these books. Second of all, it yields numbers that are super easy to interpret. So you land on the page, there are color-coded percentage scoring bars for all the categories I just described in literally five seconds. You got the cover of the book, you got the bars, literally in five seconds, you have a decent idea of the information quality of that book. And then the further you scroll down the page, the deeper you get into the review. So there's the summary where you can just get an overview of what we found. And then below that, there's the full scoring where we justify every single little score that we gave every single section of that book as we went through the review method. And so there's page numbers, there's quotes, there's links to scientific studies, um, everything to document exactly what we did. And so any level of engagement that you want to have with that, if you just want to spend five seconds and get the quick take, or if you want to go all the way down and, you know, 
be really skeptical and decide for yourself whether you agree with all the scores that we gave, you know, and whether you're someone who doesn't know anything about science or whether you're a high-level researcher, there's a level of engagement that all those people can can use um, with the materials that we publish. And so essentially what we're trying to do is solve this enormous problem that we have in the health and nutrition publishing industry, which is that the incentives are terrible. The incentives are not aligned with information quality. So basically, you know, uh, you can say any almost anything you want in this sphere, and there's no repercussions. Like, there's no one who is ensuring that the things that are published have high quality of information. You know, the publisher, I found this out when I published my book. I went out of my way to send my book out for a review with a number of experts, but the publisher didn't require me to do that. They didn't check anything in my book. They don't see that as their job. And I'm not saying this to dump on publishers because they have limited resources, but that's just a fact. They do not see, they, they do not view themselves as an information filter preventing bad quality information from entering the public sphere. And so, and then the people who are reading these books generally don't really have the expertise to judge whether it's a load of baloney or not. And, you know, it's not like, it's not really a, a reflection of people's intelligence. Like people just, you can't be an expert in everything. Even me, like I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. Most of neuroscience, I don't know. I know my little slice of it, right? So I can read a book on neuroscience that's outside of my area of expertise and I will have a hard time evaluating the information quality of that book. So this, you know, unless you're willing to sit down and spend hours reviewing the scientific literature on the topics that are on the claims in the book, unless you're checking references and going in and reading the studies and comparing them to the claims, it's really hard to know whether books are uh, telling the truth or not. Because people can create these persuasive narratives and they do all the time around ideas that really fundamentally are not scientific. But that is what we do. We do search through the scientific literature and we do check the references and we do it in a way that's more rigorous than anyone else is doing. And so essentially we're trying to create an incentive structure for the publishing industry where books that are high quality are going to sell better and books that are low quality are going to sell worse. And that is going to send a signal to authors and publishers, you better start paying attention to information quality because it's going to affect the bottom line. People are reading these books they're making their, sorry, people are reading these reviews, they're making their purchase decisions based on it. Uh, furthermore, if you make claims that are not evidence-based, it's going to be reflected, it's going to affect your reputation. And so we're creating an incentive structure for people to be either rewarded or punished for the information quality of what they're publishing. So what we're hoping is that ultimately, this is going to lead to uh, an increase in the quality of what's being published in the health and nutrition sphere, an increase in public understanding of health and nutrition science, and improvements in public health. I love that, man. It's 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 sad, but it's it's kind of shocking what you can get away with in this industry, unfortunately. So, um, and it's actually crazy that something like this hasn't been created sooner. So, I'm happy that you guys are because I think it's a great way for. Pe- coaches, people like me in the industry, um, and then also the clients that are hiring people like to do their due diligence before they pay money to hire somebody to help them. Um, do your research, use this tool to be able to actually decipher what you're learning and really not hurt yourself in the long run. Because I think that's the unfortunate thing that there's so many wild claims and um, great marketing behind flawed information that is is actually hurting individuals in this space. So um, and that's just is it just redpenreviews.com? Dot org. Dot org. Okay, yeah. cool. So I'll put that in the show notes because that's that's just a free Great. resource that people can go check out, correct? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Um, is there anything else before before we close this out? Is there anywhere else that people can find your information, get your books or anything else that you can shout out right now for them to check out and follow your work? Yeah, so my personal website is stephanguillenay.com. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't been publishing there a whole lot lately, um, but I am most active on Twitter right now. And my Twitter handle is at WH source. Perfect. I will link uh, the site, your Twitter and uh, also redpens.org in the show notes, um, as well as uh, Amazon links to your books. 
Um, Stefan, thank you so much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. This has been really cool as uh, a reader of yours and, and to be able to have you on the podcast and, and dive into everything um, that you talked about in the book and more. So thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Before I let you go, I just want to say thanks. I seriously appreciate you spending this last hour or so with me, educating yourself to get better results. It still humbles me to this day that people around the world literally have me in their headphones or their speakers just to learn. It's so empowering, and because of that, I have three quick things for you. The first one is a personal favor. Please leave me a five-star rating and review on iTunes. When you do this, not only does it help me learn and get better at making podcasts for you to get better results, but it helps us grow inside of iTunes, which allows us to invest more, again, to get you better results. The second thing, head over to boomboomperformance.com slash sign dash up or click the link in the show notes to get your free copy of the Nutrition Hierarchy. This is everything you need to know about nutrition to change your body composition or performance inside of a manual. I take the leading evidence inside of research and all the principles, methods, and tools based on some of the top professionals in the industry, and I put them all in a book so you can learn more about your nutrition and get better results. The third thing, this is a personal invitation to shoot me a DM on Instagram or email me at Cody at BoomBoomPerformance.com. I will help you troubleshoot anything you need. This is literally an invitation to jump in my inbox and ask me anything you want and let me help you. All right, guys, that's all I got for you this time. I appreciate you being here and I'll see you next time.